Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. One of the great progressive victories last November, along with the midterm election of a new Congress, was the vote in Florida to restore voting rights to people who had been convicted of felonies and served their sentences. Felon enfranchisement, we called it. And we also called it one of the great victories for voting rights in decades. 1.4 million people we're going to get back their right to vote. But the news from Florida since then has not been so good. And for that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. Sasha writes regularly for The Nation and also The American Prospect and The Atlantic. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. And he also hosts The Abramsky Report, Online at theabramskireport.com, no spaces. Sasha, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on. Well, you cover the Florida felon reenfranchisement campaign for the nation and for our podcast last fall. Remind us what it took to win that fight. Well, I did cover it for the nation. Um, I actually have been writing about it for 20 years at this point. And it's one of those things where you write about something so often and it's such an injustice and eventually you think, well, this is one of those injustices that we're just stuck with. And then last November, Florida voters actually decided that they had had enough of permanent disenfranchisement. And I think I should explain a little bit about what we're talking about here. Yeah. Because it's, it's kind of complicated. Most states disenfranchise people while they're in prison or parole. There are a couple states that don't. But most states say if you've been convicted of a felony offense, and you go to prison, or even if you don't go to prison, you're serving a sentence in the community, that while you're serving that sentence, you don't have full civil rights. Now, a bunch of southern states mainly have taken that a step further, and they had these Jim Crow laws dating back to the late 19th century that basically were looking for ways to disenfranchise African Americans and poor whites. And they came up with this set of guidelines that basically said, you commit a felony, you go to prison, you go to jail, you never vote again. 
And because we're in an era of mass incarceration where so many people are getting felony convictions, the numbers add up. And so what you found in Florida was by 2000, that election when just a handful of votes separated George Bush and Al Gore, in 2000, there were three quarters of a million people in Florida who couldn't vote. And if you fast forward to 2018, there were 1.4 million. Imagine that in a state of Florida, over 10% of adult potential voters have been taken off the voter rolls because at some point in their life, they were convicted of something, even if it wasn't something serious. So Florida voters said, we've had enough of this. And there was this huge campaign, mobilized thousands of people around the state. And interestingly, it created coalitions between very progressive groups and very conservative groups. So you had the Christian Coalition, you had Americans for Prosperity, you had all these conservative groups who came on board and supported reenfranchisement. And so you're right, it passed in November and there was this huge sort of collective sigh of relief that finally an injustice was being righted. And now the Republicans in the State House are trying to sabotage it. Before we get to now, there's one other question I have about the campaign last November. There was surprisingly little organized opposition, uh, even though we assume that most of the beneficiaries of this new law will vote for Democratic candidates. Why do you think the Republicans didn't fight the amendment uh, in, at that time? Well, there, there are two things. The first is that there's actually a lot of data out there now that says that it may not benefit the Democrats disproportionately because a huge number of poor conservative whites in Florida and throughout the South have also been caught up in the war on drugs and the war on crime. So there's a controversy as to which political party it will benefit. But I think the bigger question is, this is a question of justice. It's not a question of pragmatic politics, who wins, who loses. It's a question about fairness. And there was this campaign, the Florida Restoration Rights Restoration Commission, and a group of others, League of Women Voters, the American Civil Liberties Union, and they created a campaign that very, very intelligently used the language of rights. So they didn't talk about partisan political advantage. They talked about civic dignity. They talked about second chances. They talked about the fact that if we're going to release people, we want them to be reintegrated into the community. And this is a language that criminal justice reformers have been using for decades now. But the coalition around Amendment 4 managed to take that language and popularize it. And they managed to connect with voters across racial, class, regional, political demographics. And at the end of the day, it got 65% of the vote. It got far higher vote than Ron DeSantis did for governor or that any of the senatorial candidates did. Nothing in 2018 in Florida polled higher than Amendment 4. It's a f- wonderful story. The Republicans did not oppose it in November, but now in the state legislature, the Republicans are trying to stop it. Tell us what's going on there now. Yeah, you know, it's weird because there wasn't organized opposition. The Republican Party didn't take an official stand on it. Ron DeSantis, when he was running for governor, pretty much stayed neutral, though he expressed some reservations about speed of reenfranchisement and so on. So the Republicans basically sat it out, which was a huge sea change because what's been happening for the last many, many years is there's been this sort of very discretionary process where if you want to try to get your vote back, you have to go before the governor, you have to go before a clemency board, which includes the governor and two other cabinet members, and you have to individually argue your case. And so in a place where there are 1.4 million disenfranchised, 
that was essentially tantamount to permanent disenfranchisement because basically in any given year, the clemency board wouldn't hear more than a few hundred or maybe at most a couple thousand cases. So you had this sort of in practice permanent disenfranchisement and Governor Scott, the previous governor, very much supported that. Um, in fact, the only governor in recent times who tried to change it was Governor Christ, who was a Republican at the time. He's now no longer a Republican, but he actually did try to re-enfranchise large numbers of people. And Scott came in and the Republican Party made it very, very clear they no longer supported re-enfranchisement. So I think what's happened is that old analysis, the analysis that governed Rick Scott's approach to disenfranchisement or Jeb Bush's approach to disenfranchisement, that old analysis has resurrected itself. And the Republicans nationally, not just in Florida, but nationally, the Republican Party has embraced one of restricting the franchise after the next. So in Iowa and in Virginia, Democratic governors tried to speed up re-enfranchisement. Republican governors came in, undermined the re-enfranchisement. Um, you see it with gerrymandering. You see it with all the different ways that Republican state legislatures are trying to put impediments in the way of voting, whether it's putting in place new voter ID requirements or whether it's limiting early polling, or whether it's shutting the number of polling booths in poor, poor and minority neighborhoods. So you see all these ways in which the Republican Party nationally has decided the best way it can stay in power at a state level, or gain power federally, et cetera, et cetera, the best way to do this is limiting the numbers who can vote. And I think that's what's happening in Florida again, that they suddenly realized, oh my word, the franchise is going to be massively expanded. They're going to be a whole bunch of new voters who are going to have a political input and have a political say and have political priorities that they want their candidates to address. And some of those priorities are going to involve things like economic justice. Some of those priorities are going to involve redistributive policies because we're talking about a huge pool of very, very poor people and their families who suddenly have a political say, whether they're conservative or whether they're liberal, they have a political say. The reenfranchisement of ex-felons is the law in Florida. How can the Republicans get around this now? They, they, they can't. They can't say we're going to completely ignore Amendment 4. What they said is it needs to be clarified. So Amendment 4 basically said if you've completed your sentence, you can vote. And what the Republicans in the State House said was, well, what do we mean by completion of sentence? Well, obviously, you can't be in prison anymore. Obviously, you can't be on parole. But what about fines? Because most people, when they get a felony conviction, they pick up a series of fines. They pick up a series of damages. Um, they have to pay court costs. There are certain things that they have to pay, which can run to many thousands of dollars. And so historically, the fines are part of the sentence unless a judge says, you know what, we're going to move this out of the criminal area and we're going to consider those financial penalties civil liens and we're going to work out a monthly payment. And as soon as a judge says that, historically, that's no longer been part of the sentence. So now what the Republicans have said is, well, we're going to clarify Amendment 4 to say that you have to pay off all of your civil liens in order to vote. Now, if you're a poor person, you've come out of prison, you're working a minimum wage job, if you're lucky, because there's huge unemployment amongst the ex-prisoner population, you may be able to scrape together, if you're good at scraping money together, 100 or $200 a month to pay off your civil lien. What you're going to be unable to do is pay thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands all at once. And so they found a way of doing an end run around Amendment 4, which basically says if you owe anything, you remain disenfranchised. And there are varying estimates. Nobody's got an exact number. 
But the estimates that I heard when I was doing the reporting is what that means is it reduces the numbers from 1.4 million who can reapply to vote down to about 800,000. So it almost halves it. Uh, that's estimates, though, because nobody really knows. So in order to get the right to vote back, you have to pay the state or you have to pay your restitution. Isn't this a new kind of poll tax you have to pay to vote? Isn't that unconstitutional? Well, they're going to be legal challenges. And when I was doing the interviews, the ACLU and the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and the League of Women Voters all indicated that if this goes into effect, and it hasn't been signed yet, DeSantis has not signed this bill into law, but he's given indication he probably will. If it goes into effect, there'll be a rash of legal suits because you're exactly right. What it does is it puts a financial penalty onto people making it harder for poor people in particular to vote. And I spoke to lots of people. I was driving around the the state. I went to Miami, I went to Fort Myers, went to St. Petersburg, and I was interviewing people. And some of the people I interviewed were facing exactly that. They'd done their sentence. They were law-abiding citizens. They had jobs. They were paying taxes, but they had civil liens outstanding. And they had payment plans. I spoke to one woman who had a monthly payment plan. She was completely in compliance with that plan. She thought she was going to get her right to vote back after Amendment 4. Now it's not going to happen. And the heartbreak in that woman's story, because this isn't just sort of a pragmatic thing, for many, many returning citizens coming back from the prison system, this is a defining element of their humanity. And I I spoke to one woman. She said, I'm damned if I'm going to accept that I have less rights than anybody else. And that's how it's felt, that if you can't vote – in the most visceral way possible, you're being told by the state that you live in that you're a subclass of citizen, that you're not fully a citizen. And so this has a huge emotional impact on the lives of these individuals. They're trying to make good. They're trying to do what they've been told they have to do and return and integrate into the community and become law-abiding. And now they're being told it doesn't matter what you do. For years, maybe decades, you're still not going to be able to vote. And that was never the intent of Amendment 4. The whole point of Amendment 4 was give these people a second chance. That was how it was phrased, and that was how voters were voting when they voted in November. One more thing before we let you go. You recently launched the Abramsky Report online at theabramskyreport.com. What is it? Well, it's a column, and I write lots of articles, and I write lots of reported pieces and columns for publications all over the country, including, of course, The Nation. But at the same time, there are many thoughts that I have about the historical moment we're in, the philosophical issues that the Trump era raises, the um, historical parallels that the Trump era raises to mid-century authoritarian regimes and so on, that I want sort of a sort of freedom to explore on my own terms. So I wrote, set up this column. It's called theabramskyreport.com, and it's a subscription column. And basically, you can access a once-a-week political column that I write on immigration issues, on issues around distribution of power, distribution of rights on the way that the Trump administration is breaking down constitutional norms. Um, And these are the, the columns where I really go out there exploring what I think Trump means for this country, its politics and its culture and so on. And I'm having fun with it. I write once a week. I put up a column on Friday mornings. My subscribers get their columns and we get into the comments conversation about it over the weekend. So I hope that listeners out there will check it out. Sasha Abramsky, you can read his report on the new fight over restoring voting rights to felons in Florida at thenation.com. And you can check out the Abramsky Report online at theabramskyreport.com. Thank you, Sasha.
My pleasure. Thanks again. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.